I'd like you to turn to Second Samuel. We've been working our way through some aspects of Second Samuel <coughs> and the development of David from king in waiting, anointed by Samuel, to how he becomes king of a united kingdom when the uh, tribes come together and they acknowledge David as, as their king. And we've come really to chapters 8 and chapter 9 of Second Samuel. If you're using the Bible that's in the pew in front of you, um, you'll find the reading on page 312, <clears throat> 313. And I'd like at some stage this evening to read the whole of chapters 8 and 9. But initially I want to just read the last part of chapter 8 and for us to think about the last part of chapter 8 for a little while together, first of all, before setting it in the rest of the context of chapters 8 and 9. So here's what it says in verse 15 of 2 Samuel chapter 8. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Joab, son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, son of Abathar, were priests. Zariah was secretary. Benaniah, son of Jehoadiah, Jehoada, was over the Kerathites and Pelathites, and David's sons were royal advisors. Now that's the kind of few verses that you could very quickly skip over and go, so what? And what I'd like us to do is to stop for a few minutes this evening and just try and notice what is happening here in this particular part of the text and what has been said in it. This is an important marker in the whole of the story of David. These few verses are like a kind of uh, moment of reflection. The story has been developing, a lot has been happening. And these few verses are set in here as a kind of marker for us to say, this is where we've reached. This is the situation. It's a kind of cameo picture of a kingdom and a community that has now found its feet. It's got its order, it's got its shape, and it's all beginning to tick over really very well. You will find these verses echoed in a slightly different way a little later on in 2 Samuel chapter 20 and verses 23 to 26. And the significant thing there is that that's after the period when Absalom had sought to take over the kingdom from his father and David had actually gone off into exile for a while. And then another uh, attempted coup was launched by a Benjamite, someone from the tribe of Saul, a man called Sheba, which uh, almost succeeded in taking the ten tribes away uh, from David. And it's after that, a major time of upheaval in the kingdom and David's rule, that again you'll find in chapter 20 a couple of verses which are very similar to this, verses 23 to 26, where it will simply list the key people, the key players in the kingdom. And it's after a period of weakness and insecurity, and it's used to indicate the settled nature. Everything is settled down again. And everything's back on track. And that's the significance of, of these few verses and the same kind of verses that you'll see in chapter 20. It's often said that when you're reading the history, or any history, that you ought to be fairly suspicious of it. It's said that the history of kings should always be viewed with suspicion. If the history is written during the lifetime of the king, you can assume that it's too sycophantic and too kind to him. Because who was going to risk losing their heads and telling a story that didn't flatter the current king? If it was written after the king, you can tell sometimes because it's very critical of him. 
And people will come to a passage like this and uh, some of the stories of David and they will try and unpack what they're reading here as uh, either written around the time and recorded around time or written later and what that actually says about the truth of the situation. It seems to me that actually as you look at all of this in its context, what you get here is a pretty rounded picture. A picture which is actually not entirely flattering to David um, and a picture at the same time which acknowledges some of the key elements of David's reign. And one of the key phrases that is used here uh, occurs in verse 15 of this uh, particular passage. And in verse 15 it makes the statement that David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. As the story develops and Solomon comes to the throne and then after Solomon his son Rehoboam and after Rehoboam or during Rehoboam's time you have this split again in the kingdom and a whole series of kings both in Israel and Judah. You will find this little phrase is the key phrase that summarizes the nature of the rule of the various kings. It will, in a few words, describe whether or not they ruled justly and well, whether they followed after God and whether they served the people well. And in the case of very, very many of them, it will say they did not do well and they did not rule as David ruled. And this little phrase is very important because it summarizes uh, the view that is held of David as king. And I don't think it's a particularly idealized picture. I think it's just a reflection that David sought to do what was just and right for all his people. And it's one of the reasons why he goes down in the annals of history as one of the great kings of all time and why he goes down in scripture as the greatest of all of the kings. And you have a picture here of David who is in control, who is confident, who is ethical, who is religiously faithful to the uh, the covenant that God had established with his people. We get a sense here that all God's promises are being seen to be fulfilled in David. Um, With Joshua and the leadership into the land, the land is only partially taken. With the judges who are raised up, they're firefighters, uh, helping the people because of their disobedience in times of trouble. Uh, With Saul, things never really coalesce and he becomes such an insecure individual. But here in David, it seems like everything is for the first time coming together. It's as if in David's reign, we're given a cameo of what it looks like, a time looks like when the promises of God are fulfilled for his people. When the people of God are walking in that covenant relationship with God that allows God to bless them in this kind of way. But there's other things in this little phrase which are truthful and honest and help us get a picture of what is actually going on here. We have Joab, who is head of the army. We have Jehoshaphat as the recorder. We have Zadok and Ahimelech as priests. We have Sariah as secretary, Benaniah, who is over these two groups of people. And we have David's sons as royal advisors. This is his court. This is his government. This is how the kingdom of Israel is being managed. But what does it tell us? Joab we have already encountered. You may remember the story of Abner a few weeks ago. Abner who was um, commanding the army of the tribes of the north. Abner who had set up one of Saul's sons as a kind of puppet king. But Abner was the real driving force behind the throne. And how after a period of time, and not least after a fallout with the puppet king that he had established, Abner comes to David, having negotiated this with the ten tribes, and offers David the ten tribes, and offers to make a deal with him. You may remember that this is the same Abner 
who when Joab was leading David's men and Abner's, Abner was leading the household of Saul, um, they met in battle and one of Joab's brothers pursued Abner. You may remember that story. We read it one Sunday evening. And Abner called on him to stop pursuing him, otherwise he would have to kill him. And the young man, obviously out to make a name for himself, continued to pursue Abner and Abner killed him. And then there was a kind of blood feud instituted where Joab and his brother wanted revenge for the death of their brother at the hands of Abner. And Abner, um, then when he comes to make peace with David and to bring the tribes to David, is waylaid by Joab, quite deceitfully, who simply kills him, who takes him to the side. The man does not suspect anything, and Joab runs him through with a sword. Joab takes this revenge uh, for his brother, and he creates a crisis for David, an absolute crisis in the early days of the kingdom when things were just looking like they were all going to come together. And you may remember the remarkable situation back in Second Samuel chapter 3 and in verse 29, where in response to this particular situation, David, when he hears about the slain of Abner, says, May his blood fall upon the head of Joab, and upon all his father's house. May Joab's house never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy, or who leans on a crutch, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks food. Now this is David speaking about Joab, the commander of his army. And you may remember a few verses on in that passage we looked at, verses 38 and 39, where David is very candid about the nature of his relationship with Joab. The king, that is, David said to his men, Do you not realize that a great prince... And the great man has fallen in Israel today. He's talking about Abner who was slain by Joab. And today, though I am anointed king, I am weak. And these sons of Zariah are too strong for me. And that's a reference to Joab and his brother. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. If you think of David as the powerful, autonomous leader who was in complete control of everything, you need to think again. Even within David's closest circle, there were serious tensions. And there is this ongoing tension that exists between David and Joab. I mean, if you think that's strange, you only need to think about the politics of the United Kingdom at this particular time and the way in which um, the apparent disputes that arise between our Prime Minister and Chancellor Uh, constantly make the news and the tension that appears to exist there and yet the country runs and the country is governed and two of the the two most important offices of state in the country can be managed despite whatever the personal dynamics might be and you have a similar kind of situation here with David his relationship with Joab who is constantly the leader of the army constantly out in front is actually a very difficult one there are times when Joab could easily have taken the throne when Joab could have taken David out and decided to have Judah for himself. But it never happens. It probably never happens because of Joab's view, like David's, of touching the Lord's anointed. In other words, if he were ever to do that, he could only assume that God would deal with him and that no good would come of it. But there's real tension in the relationship, and we'll see this as the story develops. It's not just because of the killing of Abner, There will be many occasions when Joab will face David down and he will give David an ultimatum about whether or not he's going to allow him to remain as king. 
So if your image of David is one of a king who is completely autonomous in terms of control of the country, you need to think again because the nature of the relationship here was really quite difficult. Um, There's another reason, I think, why Joab doesn't actually take David at any stage. And that is that when it talks about him being a son of Zariah, that's not a reference to Joab's father. It's a reference to Joab's mother. Joab's mother was actually one of David's sisters. So Joab is a nephew of David. There is a close family involvement here, as you will often find in kingships and dynasties in different parts of the world, and sometimes even in political dynasties, even today in our world, in our society. So there is a relational thing here um, about these people being related, and family ties were important and they were valuable. But it doesn't lessen the tension that sometimes exists. So the picture isn't just as simple as we often think. And indeed, when you move on from the book of Samuel and you go into the book of Kings, you find David instructing his son Solomon to make sure that Joab does not go down to his grave peacefully. Now that's the nature of the relationship that was being worked out over the years in which David served as king. It was full of tension and at times very fraught. What about Jehoshaphat? We don't actually know much about this particular character, Jehoshaphat. Seems to have been responsible for keeping the records of the house of David, which is part of what gives us the historical record of all the things that took place. Today we might call him a special advisor. I'm not sure whether he was a spin doctor or not, but we don't know a lot about him except that he held a fairly key position. Zadok and Ahimelech, if it really was Ahimelech, but we'll come to that in a minute, play very important roles in the life of the society. They are descendants of Aaron. Aaron was brother of Moses, and the Lord had said that it was to be from Aaron's household and Aaron's family that the priests were to be drawn. And the tribe of Levi, the Levites, were to be there to facilitate the priests in the whole business of the religious affairs of the nation. And David has, right at the heart of government, two descendants of Aaron, two men who will carry on the priestly tradition and be well equipped and well established in doing so within the life of the nation. This is the David who has brought recently, as you may remember, the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. The David in whose heart was the desire and the inspiration to build a house, a temple uh, for the Lord, which he was not permitted to do. But at the heart of government, he brings these two people. And they're going to be tremendously important. Zadok, particularly, is going to be very important. He's going to be very faithful to David and absolutely loyal at times when things are very difficult. You'll discover that near the very end of David's life, and it's quite a strange thing, but near the end of David's life, he hadn't adequately made provision for what was going to happen on his death. Um, He had promised Bathsheba that her son Solomon would be the one who would succeed him. But he hadn't really got round to establishing that properly. And consequently, some of his other sons have ideas about who's actually going to follow. And it is when Zadok, who has faithfully ministered uh, under David, anoints Solomon, that the opposition just melts away. Because there is this sense that if Zadok has done this, then there is no point in fighting against this. This is the hand of God. This is God at work in the situation. So Zadok will be a very important figure in David's reign the whole way through it. He's one of those people who will inquire of the Lord on behalf of David. And he will ask for wisdom and guidance when it is needed. 
Ahimelech or Abathar, it's very interesting. Um, which one actually is the one who is there? Um, is it Ahimelech or is it Abathar? I ask the question simply because when you read through it, you discover that it is Abathar's name that reoccurs, not Ahimelech's. But Ahimelech may have been a grandson of the original Ahimelech, uh, which we encountered back in 1 Samuel chapter 22. You may remember he was the survivor from the slaughter of the priests of Nob. You may remember that incident when David was fleeing from Saul and his, his involvement with the priests there brought the death of all of them except one man um, who escaped. And this is, that was Ahimelech. But whatever it is, these two men are at the heart of government. And it's an indication that David wants to keep the covenant relationship with God right. He wants to be put into practice and into action the system of sacrifices, the worship of the Lord, the people coming before the Lord, because he understands that he is there by virtue of being anointed of the Lord. And these men are indicative, if you like, of, of that commitment. Sariah, administrator, head of the civil service, probably we would say, the person who made sure that everything ran smoothly, and Beniah, who was over the Carathites and the Pelathites. And what's really interesting here is we know relatively little about these people except we know they weren't Israelites. And when you go over to chapter 23 and verses 22 and 23 there, you discover that this man, Beniah, was one of David's um, key fighting men. Uh, that particular chapter in Second Samuel gives you the list of, of the key warriors, if you like, and, and the people who um, assisted David. And in verses... Um, <coughs> 22 and 23 excuse me of chapter 23 it talks about Benaniah being one of these three mighty men who was in charge of the king's bodyguard now it would appear that these two groups of people who were not Israelites who came from surrounding lands were actually the core element of David's bodyguard his special guard and it's very interesting that they're not drawn from the Israelite tribes was that indicative of the threat that was always there from some of the other tribes? Was it because David didn't really trust them? These were essentially mercenaries. People who were trained, who were clearly very good, who were clearly very professional and happy to work in a different environment. But they seemed to form the core bodyguard uh, for David. It's a fascinating set of circumstances. So when it comes to military issues, you have Joab who is the most powerful man in the land beside the king, but whose relationship with the king is very fraught. The king has just pronounced a curse on his house. Um, the tension is there between the relationship. You have protecting the king and acting as his bodyguard, people who aren't even his own people, aren't Israelites. And yet you have these two priests right at the very center of government. The situation is never quite as simple as it appears. And I know that for me, all the images I had of King David and King David just leading from the front and just being in control of everything, I've had to have a major rethink as you read through some of this material and begin to, get, begin to get a sense of how it actually works. I think of these Carathites and Pelathites as a bit like the kind of thing that happens in many contexts. I mean, we have the experience, for example, of the Nepalese Gurkhas who form part of the British army. Why on earth should people who come from the Himalayan region be bothered about being loyal to um, a British monarchy when they have their own monarchy, but they have for generations and they've been part of that. 
And it's that kind of relationship, that kind of thing that seems to be working here, where these people are hugely trusted by David in a context where David's relationship with his key man is at times very difficult. So when you stand back and survey the scene, on the surface, in these few verses, in chapter 8, you have a lovely, settled, quiet presentation of the kingdom under David. Everything is in order. Everyone has their place. But when you begin to unpack some of those relationships, you discover that it's not that simple. There are tensions with these bloodthirsty nephews. He's guarded by foreign forces, but he is supporting and supported by descendants of Aaron. Now let's read the rest of the chapter, and then I want to make three very brief comments at the end. I want to begin in verse 1 of chapter 8. And there is a a tremendous contrast either side of these few verses. And it's not that I need to say a lot about them. The contrast will become very obvious. The contrast between what at times just seems desperate cruelty and incredible kindness in David. 2 Samuel 8. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. He took Metheg, Amma, from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought tribute. Can you imagine the terror, the complete terror, if you were a Moabite lying on the ground? Moreover, David fought Hadadzer, son of Rahab, king of Zoab, when he went up to restore his control along Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, seven thousand charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadad-Ezer and brought them to Jerusalem, from Teba and from Berothea, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. When too, King of Hamath heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had been at war with too. Joram brought with him articles of silver and gold and bronze. David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines and the Malak. He also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zoban. And David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. 
chapter 9. David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba, and they called him to appear before David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is in, at the house of Machir, son of Amael, in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar, from the house of Machir, son of Amael. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honour. David said, Mephibosheth. Your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family, You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. And he was crippled in both feet. In the surrounding passage around these verses that give us this picture of this settled kingdom, you have the military exploits and the very bloody exploits of David. Uh, the merciless exploits when 22,000, 18,000 when people are measured off with a length of rope and, and killed and you have demonstrations of kindness like this demonstration of kindness to Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake it's really all very striking but so what three things with which I would leave you this evening life is very seldom straightforward Relationships are very seldom straightforward. The environment in which we as Christians live and work is seldom straightforward. Sometimes people look at our lives and they look at us and they think, well, they don't have any worries. They don't have any great big struggles. You could read those verses at the end of chapter 8 and think, oh, well, David's landed. He's got his recorder. He's got his chief civil servant. He's got his priests. He's got his military commander. What more does he need? But that would be to misunderstand the nature of the relationships and his life. It was much more complicated, much more stressful, much more tension-filled than that. And so it is for many of us. Our lives are not necessarily as straightforward as they look on the surface. Our relationships are not necessarily as straightforward as they appear. The tensions with which we live and the environments in which we work are sometimes very difficult and very fraught. As I read those verses and think about that, the thing that strikes me is that it can truthfully be said of David that he reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. 
in the midst of all of those tensions. I take that as a challenge and I offer it to you as a challenge. That whatever the nature of your work relationships, your friendships and all the rest of it, there is a challenge for us in a life that is often fraught and often filled with tension to be people of integrity. To seek to do what is just and right, whatever other tensions we deal with. That is a huge challenge. I don't say it lightly. It's not easy in many situations. But here it is said of David, and it would be a good thing if it could be said of us. I draw that lesson from these few verses. In the same vein, the other thing that I would say to you is, It forces me to take more seriously Paul's injunction to Timothy that we should pray for those in authority. I, like a lot of people, find it very easy to be cynical about politicians and about authority. I don't find it difficult to be suspicious of them and what they're up to. I do find it very difficult sometimes to imagine how on earth you could ever, as a Christian, live and operate at the kind of levels of power in our society that could make any meaningful difference. Yet here in the midst of all of this, in the midst of what he is as a person and a warrior, in the midst of the set of relationships that he has, David is seeking to do what is right and God often has his people in situations that are difficult doing what is right, even when it's difficult. There are people like Daniel. There are people like Nehemiah. There are people who rise to power in circumstances and situations that seem to be completely at variance with their own standards and with their own religious beliefs and convictions. But God puts them there. He put Daniel there at the heart of power in Babylonia. He puts Nehemiah in a key position of power with Cyrus. And God allows and enables these people to maintain their integrity even in situations that seem to be so fraught and so impossible. Little wonder that Paul calls us to pray for those in authority, for kings and all those in authority. He calls us to pray for them so that they might do what is just and right and that we might all live peaceable, quiet lives and that the gospel might be spread. And as I watch what is happening here and recognize the tensions within which David lived, And I see Zadok and Abathar or Ahimelech be faithful to him and do what is necessary in representing him before God. I see a model of what it is for us to do the same in obedience to scripture's call to pray for those in authority. Another thing which I see out of this passage is that grace is sometimes to be found in the most difficult circumstances and the most violent circumstances. When you read chapter 8, you get the impression and the image of a king who is rising to power and who will have no one stand in his way. And that's clearly part of what is happening here with David. And you get, yet you get the text of scripture acknowledging that the Lord gives the victories to David. And precisely because David is confident about his anointing by God and confident that if God is the one who has led to his anointing and called him to be this, that God will be with him, you find someone who, unlike Saul, is not threatened. And consequently, even though he has to manage these difficult relationships, like his relationship with Joab, 
He has the capacity to show grace and mercy. When you think that for, what was it, seven years, Abner led the house of Benjamin against David. Why is David going looking for the descendants of Saul, any that are left? Why is David bringing right into the center of his court Mephibosheth, the last possible point around which people could rally in opposition to him? Why does he demonstrate such grace? How can he do so? Would Saul have done this? Well, we saw from Saul that what Saul was out to do was to run a spear through David because he sensed the threat that David posed. But here in the midst of all of this violence and in the midst of all that is going on here is grace at work because this man at the heart of it all is not threatened. He is confident in God's call in his life and he is confident of God's faithfulness to him. And he can embrace and bring right in Mephibosheth into his own court. He can give instructions that all the lands of his predecessor, rather than hold them to himself as a symbol of his power over Benjamin, can be returned to the family of Saul. He can virtually offer Mephibosheth his own mini kingdom without threat. The truth of the matter is that sometimes we encounter God's grace in the places where we least expect to find it. But generally, we only ever encounter it in the lives of those who are confident in their relationship with God. You can find yourself sometimes in life in very difficult circumstances, and yet there are the moments when God speaks to you, when God provides someone to support you or to help you, when you become confident of God's faithfulness, when you see prayers being answered when you least expected it. The kind of people that God tends to use in those situations are people who are confident in God himself. If you are to be one of those people for others in difficult circumstances, you need to be confident about God's promises to you and God's provision for you in Jesus Christ and in the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if we are confident of our standing in Christ, then we can be strong enough to be people who demonstrate grace even in adverse circumstances or to those who find themselves in adverse circumstances. It is often when we are insecure as Christians that we are insular. It is often when we are insecure as Christians that we choose not to notice what other people suffer. It is often because we are insecure ourselves as Christians that we would rather simply keep our heads down and hope that someone else comes to the rescue. I see in David here grace at work in the midst of all of this situation. And finally I would say in looking at these chapters I see here a picture of judgment the inevitability of judgment that comes at the hand of God's anointed. I can't pretend for one minute that I find what David does here with these people, uh, the Moabites, at all easy to cope with. This is the kind of thing that if it had happened in the Balkans uh, or happened in other parts of the world, we would be horrified at. The idea that this is how you assert control over people. You randomly select who is going to die. It's the kind of thing we expect to read about in the worst of war crimes. We would classify that as a war crime in our day and generation. Yet this is the man whom God has anointed as king and to whom the Lord gives victories. This is the man who begins to grab hold of a kingdom and an empire. This is the man in whom we see the promises of God being fulfilled in a way in which we've never seen them before. 
in Joshua or in the Judges or in Samuel or in Saul. But I think the right thing for us to do is... um, Ralph Davies says in his commentaries on Samuel is to stand back for a moment and ask ourselves what is the message that this communicates to us? The message of chapter 8 that speaks about an awfulness of judgment on those who opposed God's people because many of these people were constantly opposed to Israel and sought to destroy Israel and at the same time the measure of God's grace through this same man. And what Ralph Davies calls us to think about is Do we not actually have here, however repugnant some of it might be to us, a very powerful picture of the glorified Christ? You see, we sing it in our songs because we read it in Scripture. We read it in Philippians 2 as we think about every knee bowing before him. We read it in the book of Revelation. That Christ is the one who has been appointed judge of all. And someday that judgment will be exercised. Someday the enemies of God will be called to account. And we would be completely failing in our representation of the just wrath of God if we were to assume or to communicate the idea that that just wrath can be anything other than horrendous. And that what we have here in a cameo, historically, without any understanding of what it was doing necessarily, An image of what will happen when the kingdom of God is finally established through his Christ. It's the kind of thing you'll see reflected if you take time to read from Revelation chapter 19 to the end. Because you'll have images there of a king coming in justice and judgment which is awful to read. But the same one being the light for his people where there will no longer be any day or night. No longer any tears or crying. No longer any death or disease. Where the beauty of his presence will be overwhelming. And the wholeness that he brings to his people complete. And in these chapters, difficult as some of it is, is a foretaste, a warning, a reminder that actually God cares about justice. And his wrath means something. And perhaps as we reflect on this, That's one of the things we ought to be thinking about. Because sometimes we are very afraid of the concept, of speaking of the concept, of God's just wrath on a godless, rebellious world. It will not be easy. And that is why, in terms of presentation of the gospel, we speak of grace. Like the grace that was offered to Mephibosheth, the grace that is offered to you and me in Christ. It brings us right to his table. It calls us family. It bids us come to his table and come and eat and share in his his body and share in his blood and share in the salvation that comes through it. And at the same time, worship him and recognize that he is the one who will judge the world with justice. There's much to reflect on in these stories as we read them in the Old Testament. And I trust and pray that some aspect of this might be helpful to you as you think about what it means for you to live as a Christian in the days of the week that lie ahead. Let's pray together. Father, while we may be removed by many, many centuries from the circumstances and situations that we read about here, 
in Scripture. We thank you that we can relate to it and learn from it in very powerful ways. We have things that we can take away to meditate upon about our lives as individuals and our unique circumstances. We have things that we can take away and meditate upon and reflect upon as we consider your purposes for the world and your way of working with the world. We pray that you would help us to do so and to do so wisely. Our Father, we pray that you would grant that it might be said of us that we are people of integrity, that however difficult and fraught the circumstances in which we live, we might seek to have a statement such as is made of David here, made of us, that we deal justly and fairly in all our dealings. Grant that we might do this for the glory of Christ who loved us and who gave himself for us. Amen.